James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 is where we'll launch off and, and pick up from where we left off last time we studied. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will. That's in a very important couple of words you're going to see a lot tonight. It will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For that one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, if you remember when we left off last time, two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that God desires to use the trials in our life to accomplish his purposes. And so if God's sending trials to accomplish his purposes, we need wisdom in our trials to know what God's purposes are so that we can line ourselves up with the right attitude in response to why God's having us go through the trials. If you look at James chapter 1, you might have done this yourself over the years. We've broken this down into sections and not realized how they tie together. Verses 2 through 4 talk about count it all joy if you face trials. And as we face trials, we look at those verses. But when we need wisdom or we need an answer from God, we look at verses 5 through 8 and say, if any of you lack wisdom, let them ask God. And, and then we break all of James 1 into sections. And I actually think, as I've been studying this and wrestling over it, that this all comes together. We count it all joy when we face trials, but we're going to need wisdom in the midst of the trials. And we're going to go on and so on like that. And we're going to spend a little bit of time tonight dealing with the fact that when we ask for wisdom, we should ask and not doubt. But I'm not going to spend too much time on that for this reason. If we've focused most of our time tonight dealing with not doubting and having faith when you ask God, we get focused on whether or not we have enough faith. Right? Well, that's, there's a problem with that. If you start focusing on how much faith you have, your faith get, becomes in your what? In your faith. You start becoming so center on, centered and focused on yourself, you're all belly aching about whether or not you have enough faith and you're looking at yourself. I want to remind you of something, that faith is not determined by how much faith you have, but actually your great faith or little faith is determined by the size of your God. And let me clarify what I mean by that. We're going to just go through this in our minds just to kind of catch you up. In Matthew 14, Jesus is walking on the water and Peter says, if that's really you, have me step out of the boat and join you on the, on the water in the storm. And Jesus says, come. And after Jesus speaks, Peter steps out in faith out of the boat and he walks on the water for a period of time. But then the Bible says he started to look at the wind and the waves and he started to sink. And Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith. Now, most of us would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. How come this guy? You just said he has little faith. This guy had enough faith to step out of a boat in a storm. And you say he has little faith. That's chapter 14 of Matthew. Chapter 15, we see that Jesus is talking about how he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And the woman who's a Gentile, after having been called a dog, let me paraphrase it. She pretty much says, then I'll be a dog. Because even the dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And if I have to be a dog to get what I need from you, I'll be a dog. Jesus says to her, you have great faith. 
Now, wait a minute. Peter steps out of a boat in a storm and is told that he has little faith. The woman says, I'll just take crumbs. And she's told that she has great faith. And when you get to chapter 17 of Matthew, Jesus makes this statement. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, move and it'll move. Now, if I ever held a mustard seed on my finger right now, you couldn't see it. That's how small it is. It barely, I mean, it's just a little speck on the tip of my finger. So if Jesus said, in order to move a mountain, we only need faith the size of a mustard seed, it really must not be determined by how much faith we have. But like I just shared with you, the biblical definition of great faith versus little faith is not how much faith you have, but how big your God is. If your God is big and able to do everything that he has said, you have great faith. Because your faith is in a great God. But if you see God as not willing or not capable or not interested, you have little faith because your God has shrunk. Let's take this definition and check it against what we just looked at. Remember, Peter steps out of the boat and he starts to sink. But why did he start to sink? Because he took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking where? And the wind and the waves and the wind and the waves started to look bigger in his eyes and Jesus started to look smaller. And he was told, you have little faith. Why? Because your God just got smaller than the waves. The woman says, you are so big and so powerful. If I even just get crumbs, that's all I need. She was told, your God's huge and powerful. Your faith is big. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time tonight dealing with believe and don't doubt because we'll start going down the road of am I believing enough? You're going to see later on as we talk about this, possibly the, the whole story of the man who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief come out in our study. But for now, what I want to do is deal with what the Bible is saying that we should be asking for if we lack it. And that is what? Wisdom. Now, listen closely. The Bible says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to everyone without finding fault. But listen closely. When we hear the word wisdom, though, what we really think is what we really mean is we want information. In other words, we ask a specific thing of God and we want God to give us a specific answer. And I want to show you from Scripture that I have no problem with you praying specific prayers. But don't assume that God is going to give you the specific answer you're looking for. He's promised to give you wisdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let's go back to Job. Job had some questions he wanted answered, didn't he? If you know anything about the story of Job, he looks really good in the first couple of chapters. But God lets this trouble and the trial continue with his friends and all of a sudden, what's deep in the heart of Job starts to come out. And God knew it was already there. But Job starts to make statements like this. This isn't fair. This isn't right. God's doing this and it's not tied to my sin, which was correct. It wasn't tied to his sin. But how can a man contend with God? I'd love to if it was possible. But who can have a face to face with God? I'd love to have a face to face with God one day. By the way. How many of you have ever said yourself or heard people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God a couple of things. Let me just tell you right now, you won't. 
Because we have someone who said those exact same words. Go to Job 38 and look at verses 1 through 3. Job 38, starting in verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. So God shows up and said, hey, I understand you wanted a face to face with me. Well, here I am. I understand you got some questions you want to ask me. I'll tell you what. Let me ask you a couple of quick ones first. And then you can go ahead. Jump over to chapter 40. Look at what God says to Job in Job chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I'm of small account. Well, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I'll proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? I'm not asked for a show of hands because we've all done it. But how many of you have ever thought, well, that isn't right. When God did something or didn't do what you thought he ought to do. How many of you, like the psalmist Asaph and others, said, I look at the wickedness in the world and the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering and I got a problem. How many of you thought to yourself, well, if I were God, I would do it different. You say, wait a minute, I would never say that. Yeah, you do. Every time you say, how could God? How could a loving God? You're questioning God and his goodness. And Job did that. And God shows up and says, would you put me in the wrong to put yourself in the right? The moment you start saying, if I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. You're putting God here and you here. Now, Folks, there isn't a person in here, including Jim Johnson, that hasn't done it in some way, shape, or fashion. You know why? Because we're all infected with that same attitude that Satan infected Adam and Eve with, where he says, you can be like God, determining good and evil, right and wrong. And we have to be willing to lay that down. And in our lives, if we're honest, God gets to do things however he wants, correct? But he said, I'm not going to leave you in the dark totally as I put you through these trials for my purposes. If you're lacking wisdom, I will give you wisdom. Don't hear that I will answer your question exactly the way you want me to answer it. Oh, and don't hear that I'll answer it on the deadline you give me. But he has promised that he would give wisdom. So listen, you know, you know, Paul himself actually prayed three times that that thorn in his flesh would be removed. And what did God tell him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made strong and perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul didn't get the answer he was looking for, but he got wisdom. 
He understood that God had a purpose for what the trial he was going through. And that's why he started that whole section. He said to keep me from becoming conceited because of all these great revelations that God had given him. To keep me from becoming conceited, God gave me this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And I asked him to take it away. And he said, actually, no, this is good for you. And then Paul said, then I will embrace my struggle. I, by the way, I don't have time to chase this. I want to chase it so bad. This is a fun sermon to preach. God opened my eyes to something one day as I was looking at that passage. Paul had heavenly visions. He prayed for a miracle healing. And God said, I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you suffering. Isn't that interesting? I mean, think about this now. Let this sink in for a minute. Paul had been given heavenly visions, but he wasn't allowed to talk about it. He prayed for a miracle healing, and God says, I've got something better than heavenly visions. I've got something better than a miracle healing. I've got something better than both of those, and that it's suffering, but it's going to cause you to rely on me on a daily basis. And Paul said, I choose that. Did you catch that? He said, I say no to heavenly visions. I say no to the miracle healing. I want the suffering that makes me get to know you more and experience your power. I don't know about you folks, that sounds like wisdom. But we must believe that God is good and will not withhold from us anything that we need and is good for us. I'm going to say this to you again, because if you're going to pray in faith, if you're going to believe that God will give you wisdom, you've got to understand this about God. And I'm going to give you some scriptures that back this up. And I want you to lock them down in your heart. I want you to put them down on three by five cards and put them on your bathroom mirror. I want you to put them on your refrigerator, wherever it is. These words can be used of God to remind you of the goodness of God. You must believe that God is good and that he will not withhold from us anything that we need and is good for us. Go to Psalm 84. You know, when we say to ourselves, how could a loving God or why would God have me go through this? We're saying God's not good. Psalm 84, look at verses 11 and 12. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. By the way, if you are in Christ, you are righteous. And if you are in Christ and are righteous and you are living your life dependent on him, you walk uprightly. And he's promised those who walk uprightly, who depend on me, who have been declared righteous because of me, I will withhold no good thing. And I will also bestow favor and honor. Go to Psalm 34. Look at verses 8 through 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? He's good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Now the young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack what? No good thing. By the way, you're going to have needs. But you will never have lack. 
There's a difference between needs and lack. Some of your translations say want instead of lack. There's a difference between needs and want. You're going to have needs. We all have needs. And actually, God's designed it that we would have needs so that we would turn to who for our needs to be met? Him. But he's promised that even though you have needs, you'll never lack any good thing that you need. He's promised it. Now, the question is, do you believe it? And here's one of the weird things. If I were to ask you tonight, and I know looking around, I know most of your faces. I know most of who you are a little bit. And if I were to ask you tonight, do you know that through faith in Jesus Christ, that you've been forgiven of your sins and you have been sealed by the spirit of God? And you know that if you died right now, you would go be with Jesus in heaven. You would say yes, correct? You're not sitting here worrying about that. Hopefully no one's sitting in here wondering and saying, I sure hope so. Hopefully, you know, you're his and you're going to heaven, right? How do you know that? Because he said it and he's promised it. And you believe him. Yet he's made a lot of promises like we just read and some more coming up. That we all go, well, I don't know if that'll really happen to me. I don't know if I'm really one of those people that walks uprightly. Oh, you've taken your eyes off of him and put him on the person or on the wind or the waves. Do you see what I'm saying? You want to be one of these people that in the midst of the storm can sing praises at midnight? You want to be one of those people while people are throwing stones at you that you can say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Well, where, where was Stephen looking when that was happening to the father? You want to be one of those men and women of faith that it doesn't matter what's going on in America or the globe or whatever. My wife and I are going to be going to Israel in a couple of weeks. We're heading to March 23rd with a group from our church and I'm going to be helping teach with some people. And people are going, aren't you worried about going to Israel? Hey, if God said to go to Israel, that's the best place for me to be. I'm keeping my eyes on him. And he's going to withhold no good thing. And by the way, sometimes suffering is good. Go to Luke chapter 11. I'm going to hit this hard and fast, but I want you to, when you get time, reread this story. I'm just going to start it. It's Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. But I want to have you go back later on on your own and reread this story. But I want you to reread it with this kind of a mindset. Look at Luke 11, verse 1. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now we're going to stop. I was reading this one day, and all of a sudden something jumped off the page at me here. It's almost like as Jesus was praying in a certain place, the disciples came to him and they said, we've been watching you pray a lot and we've been seeing God do lots of interesting things through you when you come out of your times of prayer. And you seem to get a lot of insight and wisdom from your times of prayer. Would you teach us to pray? Listen, but we're afraid you might not. But John taught his disciples. Do you ever have your kids ask you for something they're afraid you're going to say no? And they'd say, Susie's parents are letting her. You know what I'm talking about? We're afraid you're going to say no, but I want to pressure you into saying yes, because Susie's parents are doing it, too. I want you to reread this story in Luke 11 with that mindset and, uh, uh, mindset and watch how this story comes alive. I think the disciples saw Jesus praying, but there was a little bit of them who were afraid that he might not teach them. So he said, John taught his disciples. They said, John taught his disciples. And now for the sake of time, I'm going to paraphrase what goes next. Jesus immediately goes into a story. 
He reminds them of what he had already taught them in the Lord's Prayer. And if you notice, you compare this with Matthew 6. It's a Reader's Digest version. Our Father who art in heaven and so on. But then he immediately goes into the story and he says, this guy had someone come to his house and he didn't have any bread to give him. And so he went to his other friend to go ask him for bread at midnight. And he knocks on the door and the guy says, look, I'm already in bed and our kids are in bed. You can upset the whole house if you keep knocking on the door. But then he says this. He says he gets up and gives him what he wants, but he doesn't do it because he's his friend. He does it because of the man's. And then depending on what translation you have, persistence, impudence or whatever. It's a hard word to translate. It's actually the best English word we have is shamelessness. Asking without shame. I could ask you for some money, Glenn, but I could do it without shame. I could do it with shame, like I'm kind of embarrassed, kind of shamed, you know. Or I could just say boldly, hey, could you give me some money? Listen closely. Jesus said the man gets up and gives him what he's requesting, not because he's his friend, but because he saw him as someone that he could go to at midnight who would be willing to do it. Do you see it? The boldness, the shamelessness. Let's just imagine that you are broke down at four in the morning on the side of the road. You have a cell phone, but you don't have AAA. So you are going to now your brain's going to go through a Rolodex of someone you could call for help. But you're not going to call just any of your friends. You're going to call the one you know would not only be glad to do it. They're willing and able. Right. But you want to make sure that it's not you're not going to call this guy, even though he'd get up and help you. You're going to owe him. He's going to say, you owe me now. You're not going to call him. There's going to be another person you could call and they could probably come and help you. But they would tell you all the things you should have been doing to take care of your car and how you wouldn't have been in this situation if you hadn't have been like them. You're not going to call that person either. You're going to call the person that you can ask without shame, with boldness. I know you're willing and I know you're able. And that's why I called you. And Jesus says, those are the kind of people that get their prayers answered. The people that come to the Father shamelessly, they not only know that he's able, they know that he's willing because of what he has said. And then he goes right into ask and you will, uh, he, uh, sorry, not, not knocking the door will be open, seek and you will find. You know, he says you will, you will, you will. And so I want to just challenge you as you're seeking wisdom. As you're praying about situations in your life, you've got to take your eyes off of you and whether or not you're asking it right and just say, Lord, I see you in the Bible as a good God, a loving father. Now, I don't want to overstep my bounds and start saying prayers like, well, I believe so much you have to do it. No, faith only begins when you know what God has said. But when you know what he said, you hold him to what he has said. And you don't say you owe me. You say, I come to you because you're good. And he responds to that type of prayers. What does Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six say? You know, I'm a, I know you can quote it with me. Listen, trust in the Lord. What? With all your heart. Lean what? Not on your own understanding. In what? Some? All of your ways acknowledge him. And he what? He what? Oh, he what? He will. Don't jump to the other stuff and miss the he will. 
He will direct your path. He will make your path straight. But you need to have an attitude that says, I don't understand what's going on, but he does. Not an attitude that says, well, I don't like what's going on. And if I had a chance, I would tell him a thing or two and I'd ask him a few questions and he'd have to tell me what's going. No, 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 no. Bible says God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. But if you as a child, believing that your father is not only able, but willing and good, come to him with an attitude that says, I don't understand. I don't know what's going on. But you said that you'd give wisdom and I need it. He will give you wisdom. Now, remember, wisdom is not as much about getting the answer to the questions we ask as much as about getting to see things as God sees them and wants us to see them. You see, we want knowledge, which is information. God has promised wisdom, which the Bible calls understanding. See, knowledge is just information. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge does what? It puffs up. It makes us proud. But wisdom is knowing what to do with the information and how to apply it. There's a lot of people in the church today that love spouting off their knowledge, but they beat everybody else up in the process which shows they don't have wisdom. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Go to Proverbs chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 10. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom... And inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of, the ju of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. The Bible says that if you seek for this like silver, if you search for wisdom and understanding, it will be given you. Do you see it again in verse 10? For wisdom what? Will come into your heart. And knowledge what? Will be pleasant to your soul. Go back to Job chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? <laughs> Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. 
I'll question you and you make it known to me. I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Let me ask you a question. Did God, God ever answer Job's specific questions? Not once. If you go back in chapter 38 and read all the way to the end of the book, God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when all the angels celebrated that? Where were you when I did this? And can you tell me where the snow stored? Can you tell me this? And, and he goes through four chapters using creation to display his power and authority and glory. And says, okay, your turn. Ask me your questions now. And Job said, actually, I'm good. All the stuff I thought I needed to know, I don't need to know anymore. I've heard of you. Now I've seen you. Go with me in your minds back to all the people we see in the Bible that actually got to see God. Isaiah in chapter 6 is taken into the throne of God. And what does he say? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I've seen the Lord of glory. Ezekiel was overwhelmed and just laid there for a few days. John, who knew Jesus and had leaned against his breast on the earth, when he sees him on the Isle of Patmos in his full glory, he didn't say, hey, buddy. He fell at his feet as though dead. Folks, you want wisdom? You want understanding? Get over yourself. And let God go back to being who he is. See him for his greatness. See him for his goodness. Stop questioning him and say, you know all things and everything you want to do is going to get done. I would like to line up with all of your plans. I'm not going to sit here and now try to tell you how to do things or when to do things. You tell me to ask you and I will ask you for things because you teach me to do such. But I do so humbly, not my will but yours be done. You understand? Jesus prayed that way, didn't he? Father, here's something I'd sure like. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, my attitude is not claiming to be God. I'm the servant. Not my will, but yours be done. Folks, we need to come to God regularly with an attitude that says you are good and I am not. But I've been made your child and you've promised a lot of things and I'm not seeing them right now. Or at least I don't feel like I am. But I know that my perception is not the reality because your word says that you are good and that you withhold no good thing. So I am not going to base my life or my prayers on my perception of reality, but on who you say you are according to your word. And that's how I come to you. I come to you shamelessly and say, I need wisdom. You know, the Bible actually tells us in Philippians chapter four that we're not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make our request to God and he will give us what? The peace that passes understanding. In other words, he might not give you the specific answer to your question, but he promises to give you a peace that says, I got this. Even though you don't know how it's going to work out. Years ago when I was pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic and I had been wrestling for a year. 
as to whether or not God was calling me out of the pastorate into this traveling ministry that I've been doing now, Just Preacher Ministries, for 17 years. But when I was in that whole year of turmoil, wrestling with God to know, are you telling me to quit the pastorate? Are you wanting me really to just step out with not knowing how I was going to pay a bill or where I was going to speak or all this stuff? You guys were actually, that church you went to up in Virginia, Carl, where, where we were, that was the first church I'd ever preached in when I started in that ministry. You weren't there the first time, but, that, but you've been to that church. That was the first church I ever preached at when I stepped out into this ministry, not knowing what I was going to do or how I was going to pay a bill. And all all I heard from God after wrestling with this that I knew he had spoken was he just said this, I will walk you through it. That's all I had. And you know what? I am so glad that's how he answered my prayer. Because I've been in this now for 17 years. And I was saying, tell me yes or tell me no. And if he had said yes... I would have set out to go do it, right? I got, yes, therefore I'm to go. But he didn't say yes. He said, I will walk you through it. In other words, you'll step out, but as I show you each step of the way. And I'm so glad he answered the way he did. I wanted him to just say yes or no. Oh, by the way, that's part of our problem, too. You know why we want information, why we want knowledge, not wisdom or understanding? is because we want to know what God says so that we can now put it into all the other information we have and decide whether or not we want to do it. Guys, don't you ask your wives that way sometimes? What do you think, honey? Okay, not going to do that. But you know what I'm saying? Years ago, when I was, did my student teaching, I got my degree from Flagler College in, in physical education. I knew I was going off to seminary and become a preacher. But uh, at the time, though, I still needed to do my student teaching for one semester to be able to graduate from college and get my degree. And so I did my student teaching at Melbourne High School. I actually was working with a coach at the time there called uh, James Greer. He taught phys ed. He taught health. He also was the swim coach. And he and I worked together, and I was his student teacher. And during that time, I was teaching a health class at Mel High, and it was right when all the AIDS epidemic broke out. And everybody was panicking about, you can't do this or that, because they're all afraid you're going to get AIDS. And I remember teaching about AIDS in the health class, and this literally happened. A kid stood up in the classroom and said, well, how do you not get it? He literally stood up and said, how do you not get it? And I said, that's a great question, and let me answer that question. Here's how you, not, you don't get AIDS. You won't get AIDS if you do what I tell you right now. Don't take any drugs. Don't stick any needles in your arms. You don't have sex with anybody until you're married. And then after you're married, you can have all the sex you want, but with that person you married and nobody else. And I promise you, you won't get AIDS. You know what he said? He goes, I don't want to do that. He sat down. Oh, he wanted information. But he wanted the information to decide whether or not he thought he was going to do it. Some of you, if you're honest, you really don't want to know the will of God. You want to know what God's thinking so that you can decide whether or not you want to do it. And by the way, he knows that about you already. And as you ask him for certain things, 
He's going to get to your heart. Job, as amazing as he was, learned a lot more about himself and a lot more about God in the process of his trial, did he not? Wisdom is tied to submission and following. We've said this before. You know, Jesus in Matthew 11 said this on verse 25. He said, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to who? Little children. For such was your gracious will. Go to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to show you something about Jesus in his boyhood that may surprise you. Not the story in and of itself, but something that's said about Jesus in this story. You, a lot of us know the story. In Luke 2, 41 through 52. Now his, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they traveled in a big group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Listen to this. After three days... They found him in the temple. So now for three days, they're frantically searching for him. They found him sitting in the temple. Among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was what? Submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Not interesting. Jesus, who has been God from his birth, even before his birth, he was God. And he was God from the beginning, but he was also man. As a young boy, had authority, but he submitted himself and went with his parents, and he grew in wisdom. The Bible actually tells us in the book of Hebrews that he learned obedience through what he suffered. And because he has gone through that in this life, he too can become a faithful high priest for us as well. Folks, you want to grow in wisdom? Humble yourself and be teachable. Don't be one of these people that wants information so you can decide whether or not you agree or whether you like it. Ask God to show you truth. And he will. If you search for it like silver... Wisdom is getting to know God more. Not information about God, but getting to know God more. I know a lot of people that can quote you all the names of God in Hebrew. But that doesn't mean they know God. Do you know him? And are you getting to know him more? That's why in Ephesians chapter 1, go to Ephesians chapter 1 real quick. Paul prays this prayer. 
Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, he's just said in verses 13 and 14, In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, because you're saved and guaranteed eternity, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he says it's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Listen to what Paul said. He said, now that you've been saved and sealed, and I've heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward everyone, here's my prayer, that God would give you more wisdom and understanding and the spirit of revelation that you would know him better, know the hope to which he's called you, the glorious inheritance that we have in the brotherhood and the saints here, and the brothers and sisters in Christ, and the mighty power available for us who believe. This is the major reason for the trials in our lives. So we can know Jesus better. And that's why we can count trials as what? Joy. But that, you know, let's be honest, that's not the attitude of the American Christian today. The American Christian in the midst of trials is saying, why me? Why is this happening? How soon can it go away? And the Bible says we should be counting it joy when we meet trials because we know that it means that God's doing a work to produce in us what he wants to produce. But I don't understand what he's trying to produce. I don't know what he wants. That's great. That's why we need to ask for wisdom. And if you believe that he's good and he will, he will. Don't doubt it. Oh, Jim, he'll do it for you. He might not do it for me. Oh, if that's your attitude, you're one of those double-minded people, unstable in all your ways. You don't know what he said, or if you do know it, you don't believe it. Did he say he withhold no good thing from the preachers? Or to everybody? Everybody. Let me say something to you, folks. I've learned this over the years. Charles Stanley said it years ago, and I'm starting to understand it more and more. God has no favorites. But he does have intimates. And he wants everyone to be intimate with him. But he lets us choose whether or not we're going to get that close to him. And the Bible says those who are in him, John chapter 15, those branches that are in Christ Jesus, the vine, who are producing fruit, he what? He prunes so that it will produce more fruit. That's why Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 and following says, Everything that I had, I consider it rubbish and I want to strain toward knowing him more. I want to know him in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In other words, Jesus willingly laid his life down for the purpose of the Father. I want to live my life that way. That's why when the people in, in the church who heard that he was the prophet Agabus say, the owner of this belt's going to go to be, in Jerusalem and be bound, Paul had already had the Holy Spirit tell him that was going to happen to him everywhere he went, imprisonment and hardship. And he says, I'm not worried about that. The church was saying, don't go. Think bad things could happen. Paul says, but the Spirit of Jesus is telling me to go. And if that means I die, I'm willing to die. I have given up my life 
to follow Jesus and to know him. And folks, let me just tell you, as we get closer and closer to the end, that's what Jesus is going to be doing more and more in each of our lives. Pruning and producing in us and through us what he wants to do for our, his glory and our reward. Are you willing to stop being an American Christian and be a Christian? Because we Americans have rewritten Christianity to mean that he likes our country the best and we win. But it's not about that. Now, let's look at wisdom in the 15 minutes we have left. Let's look in the next verses in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and let's start looking at wisdom. Verses 9 through 11 say this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. By the way, I don't know if you know this yet or not. This is wisdom. Oh, by the way, this is the exact opposite of how the world sees things, isn't it? It says the lowly, the poor person should boast in their exaltation. The rich in their humiliation. We say, whoa, 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 whoa. No, the rich are the ones who are exalted. The poor are the ones who are humiliated. But not in God's eyes. You know why? Go to James chapter 2. Look at verse 5. In James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Go to Luke chapter 16. Look at verses 19 through 25. In Luke 16, look at verses 19 and following. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. By the way, we think, oh, the dogs are coming and comforting him. No, no, no. These are wild dogs in the streets back then. And as a man said years ago, if a Doberman is licking you, he's not being friendly. He's basting you. And that's what was going on with this man. When it says the dogs came and licked his sores, they were wanting to eat him. Keep reading. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. But now... And, and, and sorry, and, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. I'm going to make a statement to you that I want you to listen to. Wealth and poverty are both trials. And wealth is the harder trial. We think, oh, no, 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 no. If I had to choose between wealth and poverty, I want the wealth trial. No, you don't. You know why? Because the Bible says if you are given the wealth trial, the chances of you going to heaven are far less. 
than if you were given the poverty trial. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, starting in verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now if you know the story, the rich young ruler has just come to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the law. The guy says, I have. He says, okay, then this should be easy for you. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. The man went away sorrowful because he had great wealth. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he said, listen closely. He said, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Folks, let me say something to you that the Bible teaches over and over, and we're going to see it some more in the time we have left. The people who are poor understand their need. And it makes it easier for them to call out to the one who will meet that need, correct? But those who are rich, even though they have need, don't realize that need because their money has been answering all the same questions and promises that God makes. God makes promises that he'll provide, care for us, be there for us. And the people put their faith and their confidence in money. And it's harder for rich people. As you're going to see in just a little bit, it is possible to be rich and go to heaven. But it's hard. Actually, God has chosen that the poor people would be rich in faith. I remember as a kid, being a preacher's kid and one of five children, there were times that we as a family would sit down at the dinner table. My dad was pastoring a little church in New Hampshire that only had 30 or 40 people in the church. And we lived in a parsonage across the street. And one night there was no food. And we literally sat down at the dinner table with plates and silverware, and we all held hands, and my dad prayed that God would provide a meal for us because we didn't have any food. And a knock on the door came, and it was a farmer down the street who said God told him to come and give them what they had left over from their meal, and he had this big old pot of stew, and we immediately ate and ate well. But we knew our need and we knew we needed help. My wife and I, in our first years of marriage, I've shared with you over and over, we made less than $6,000 in our first year of marriage. And I could tell you story upon story upon story where God showed us our need of him. But he would always provide. We never lacked. Oh, he had needs. But every time he met the need and he has over and over. But the problem is the poor understand that. And they call out the ones who don't go through those trials, don't realize their need. Would you not agree that there is a world full of people on the Internet right now and social media who are flaunting their riches and have no idea they're one breath from from hell? They are one breath from hell. That's why in Psalm 73, Asaph said this. He's a worship leader. He said, my foot had almost slipped. When I saw the the wicked and how prosperous they are and their fat bodies are fat and sleek and they have no worries and they say, who, where, how does God know? And I envied them. And then he said this, 
He said, until I discerned their end. And they're like on a banana peel, pretty much is what he says. They're a foot slip away from going to eternity in hell. Wealth is a greater trial. And that's why James said, the, the brother who's poor rejoice in his exaltation. God has blessed you because you now have it easier to realize your need. And the rich... In your humiliation, you've been given the harder test. It's not impossible for a rich person to go to heaven, but it's difficult. Go back to verse 11 of James chapter 1, though. There's a key part here as we wrap up tonight. It is possible to be wealthy and follow God. But only if the rich person sees his or her wealth as God's money and not theirs and is rich toward God. Look at verse 11 again. It says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of what? His pursuits. The Bible actually says that God does bless people with riches, but he blesses people with riches so that they could use their riches for God's purposes, God's pursuits. And if a rich person understands that the wealth that they have was not because they had earned it or that they had done better in the banking or whatever, but that God had done it and God had a purpose for blessing them with it and whatever he wants to do with it, it's his. Those are the people God says, I can trust with my wealth. And he even says he'll give them more as they keep spreading it. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're turning there, remember there was a story Jesus told about the rich man who said he had uh, saved up all this stuff and he built bigger barns and he said, take a break now, you're done, you're fat and happy, eat, drink and be merry. What happened to him that night? He died. And what good was all that he had done amassing things for himself and that's what in that story, Jesus said, so are those who are not rich toward God. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's talking to this church about giving to the poor in Jerusalem and the offering that they've been talking about. But look at what he says next here in verses 6 through 15. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or even under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. What's that next word again? will supply and what multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Listen, if you hear this and think, well, if I'm generous, God will give me more money. And you're thinking you will be generous so you can get more money. You've missed it. I promise you. 
We've lived it. Our ministry experiences it. We can't give these books away and our stuff away fast enough. And I'm telling you, folks, as we keep giving these things away in our ministry, God's blessing the ministry. But he was doing it not so we'll have a big bank account so that we can keep giving it away. In your personal accounts, I promise you, if you are generous in the way God wants you to be and doing what he tells you to do, I promise you he'll give you more. Not so that you can get rich, but so that you can keep passing it on. You want to be a part of that. That's an attitude of saying, my father's generous. I want to look like my dad. Now, go to 1 Timothy 6. We'll close with this tonight. We'll pick up next week in James 1, but... I don't know how many years over the years I've heard people say to me as a pastor, Pastor, if I ever win the lottery, I'm going to give money to the church. You know, the Bible says um, he was faithful with little will be faithful with much. Folks, if you think you'll give when you get rich, you will never give when you get rich. First Timothy six, look at verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works and to be what? Generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take a hold of that which is truly life. You want wisdom? You don't need more money. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But Jimmy, you don't understand. My car needs this and, and my house needs that and, and I'm having trouble paying the bills. No, you have a God that's already promised you everything you'll ever need and no withhold you no good thing, correct? You need a different attitude toward money. You need wisdom. You need to see things as God does. Do you ever think about the fact that when Peter was confronted by the Pharisees about whether or not Jesus and the disciples paid the temple tax? And Peter goes, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm sure we do. And then Jesus meets up with Peter and says, hey, I knew about the conversation that you just had because I, I know everybody's thoughts. He says, uh, go throw a fishing line in the water. And the first fish you catch, open its mouth. There'll be two coins in there, one for you and one for me. Go pay our temple tax. Do you ever think about the fact that God showed how silly? Well, let me just put it to you this way. How many of you ever thought to yourself, if you needed $5,000, it would be easier for God to come up with that than $50,000? Let's be really honest. Let's be really honest. If, if you needed $5,000 or $500 or $50,000, you would have more faith that God could come up with $500 for you in the next week than $50,000. Correct? That's because you don't see God for who he really is. People have asked me over the years, Jim, does God care about the little things? Name something big to God. See, we see certain things are little and certain things are big. To God, it's all little. You need to have great faith. You need wisdom. The poor are the exalted ones. 
because they are going to be rich in faith. And if they're rich in faith, he'll withhold no good thing. The rich are the humiliated ones because if their faith is in their riches, they're some of the most poor people on the planet. And one day for eternity be the most miserable. You don't need more money. You need a bigger view of who your God is and he'll take care of everything else you need. In our family, you can ask my wife, you can ask my kids, we have learned this phrase, whenever God tells us to give or to do something or to spend, it's only money. That's what we say, it's only money. There you go. And folks, I'm not saying this to say that you'll never be sick or you'll, never, or you'll be a millionaire if you walk like this, but I can tell you this much, our bank account's getting bigger as we give it away more and more and more. It's tax season right now. And we sit down with our accountant and it surprises us how much we've been able to give. We're like, we're actually giving that much? We didn't even know it, didn't even feel it. And I'm not gonna tell you what it is and how many people we support because I don't want you to think I'm bragging. But let me just tell you, it's so many, it surprises us every year. And you know what we do every year? We say, God, who else? Who else? But when you start figuring, how can I save a nickel? How can I save a penny? How can I be a good steward? You've already missed it. Next week when we come back, we're going to look at the fact that the Bible says those who have persevered under trial will receive the crown of life. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.